Well, it's a crystal clear, brisk, cool night here in North Van. It's uh, about 10 o'clock at night, and it's late enough and cold enough where the sidewalks are iced off a little bit, where I just have to almost pay attention when I'm walking. Wow, what a drag. Because I'm looking up at the big, full, almost full glowing moon. Stars scrambled. Oh, well, the Guinness is worth the walk. All right, well, it's a little frosty under this tree, but uh, I pulled my thick coat off, threw that down. Guinness will keep me warm, as well as your warm comfort. Now, if I could just find my little flashlight here. Where did I put that? Oh, there it is. I got a wee little flashlight, so it'll have to make do. So, uh, what should I start off with? Let's see what's handy. All right, starting off with Haruki Murakami, barn burning. And I'm just jumping in here in the middle. We went inside and set the groceries out on the table. It turned out to make quite a spread. Roast beef sandwiches, salad, smoked salmon, blueberry ice cream, and good quantities of that. While she transferred the food to plates, I grabbed a bottle of wine from the refrigerator. It was like an impromptu party. Well, let's dig in. I'm starved, pronounced her usual ravenous self. Midway through the feast, having polished off the wine, we tapped into my stock of beer. I can usually hold my own, but this guy could drink no matter how many beers he downed. His expression never altered in the slightest. Together, with her contribution of a couple of cans, we had in the space of under an hour racked up a whole table full of empties. Not bad. Meanwhile, she was pulling records off of my shelf and loading the player. The first selection to come on was Miles Davis's Arrigan. A Garrard auto changer like that's a rare find these days, he observed, which launched, launched us into an autophilia, me going on about the various components of my stereo system, him inserting appropriate comments, polite as ever. The conversation reached a momentary lull when the guy said, I've got some grass. Care to smoke? I hesitated for no other reason than I'd only just quit smoking the month before and I wasn't sure what effect it would have, but in the end I decided to take a toke or two. Whereupon he fished a foil packet from the bottom of the paper bag and rolled up a joint. He lit up and took a few puffs to get it started, then passed it to me. It was prime stuff. For the next few minutes, we didn't say a word as we each took hits in turn. Miles Davis had finished, and we were now into an album of Strauss Waltz's. Curious combination, but what the hell. After one joint, she was already beat, pleading grass on top of three beers and lack of sleep. I ferried her upstairs and helped her onto her bed. She asked to borrow a t-shirt. No sooner had I handed it to her than she had stripped her panties, pulled on the t-shirt, and stretched flat out. By the time I got around to asking if she was going to be warm enough, she had already snoozed off. I went downstairs, shaking my head. Back in the living room, the guy was busy rolling up another joint. Plays hard, this dude. Me, I would just as soon snuggle up into bed next to her and conk right out. Fat chance. We settled down to smoke the second joint. Strouts was waltzing away. Somehow, I was reminded of an elementary school play. I had the part of the old glove maker. A fox cub comes with mon- money to buy gloves, but the glove maker says it's not enough for a pair. Tain't gonna buy no gloves, I say. Guess I'm something of a villain. But mother's so very cold. She gets chat paws, please, says the fox cub. Uh-uh, nothing doing. Save your money and come back. Otherwise, sometimes I burn barns, the guy was saying. Excuse me, I asked. Had I misheard him? Sometimes I burn barns, the guy repeated. I looked at him. His fingertips traced the pattern on his lighter. Then he took a deep draw on the joint and held it for a good ten seconds before slowly exhaling. 
The smoke came streaming out of his mouth and into the air like ectoplasm. He passed me the roach. Quality product, eh, he said. I nodded. I brought it from India, top of the line, the best I could find. Smoke's this, and it's strange. I recall all kinds of things, lights and smells and like that, the quality of memory. He paused and snapped his fingers a few times as if searching for the right words. Completely changes, don't you think? That it did, I concurred. I really was back in the school play, re-experiencing the commotion on stage, the smell of the paint on the cardboard backdrop. I'd like to hear about this barn thing, I said. He looked at me. His face wore no expression, no more expression than ever. May I talk about it, he asked. Why not, I said. Pretty simple, really. I pour gasoline and throw a match. A lighted match. Flick, and that's it. Doesn't take 15 minutes for the whole thing to burn to the ground. So tell me, I began and fell silent. I was having trouble finding the right words, too. Why is it that you burn barns? Hmm, well, you'll have to find that out for yourself. That's an interesting collection. I read that from Vintage Murakami uh, Collection. It seems to be snippets and short stories and a little variety of things. Raymond Carver, Gazebo. That morning, she pours teachers over my belly and licks it off. That afternoon, she tries to jump out the window. I go, Holly, this can't continue. This has got to stop. We are sitting on the sofa in one of the upstairs suites. There were any number of vacancies to choose from, but we needed a suite, a place to move around and be able to talk. So we locked up the motel office that morning and gone upstairs to a suite. She goes, Dwayne, this is killing me. We were drinking teachers with ice and water. We'd slept a while before morning and afternoon. Then she was out of bed and threatening to climb out the window in her undergarments. I had to get a, <laughs> I had to get her in a hold. We were only two floors up, but even so. I've had it, she goes. I can't take it anymore. She puts her hand to her cheek and closes her eyes. She turns her head back and forth and makes this humming noise. I could die seeing her like this. Take what, I go. Though, of course, I know. I don't have to spell it out for you again. She goes, I've lost control. I've lost pride. I used to be a proud woman. She's an attractive woman, just past 30. She's tall and has long black hair and green eyes and only the only green-eyed woman I've ever known. In the old days, I used to say things about her green eyes and she'd tell me it was because of them she knew she was meant for something special. And didn't I know it? I feel so awful from one thing to the other. I feel so awful from one thing and the other. I can hear the telephone ringing downstairs in the office. It has been ringing off and on all day. Even when I was dozing, I could hear it. I'd open my eyes and look at the ceiling and listen to it ring and wonder at what, at what was happening to us. But maybe I should be looking at the floor. My heart is broken, she goes. It turned to a piece of stone. I'm no good. That's what's as bad as anything. And that I'm no good anymore. Holly, I go. When we had first moved down here and taken over as managers, we thought we were out of the woods. Free rent, free utilities, plus 300 a month. You couldn't beat it with a stick. Holly took care of the books. She was as good with figures, and she did most of the renting of the units. She liked people, and people liked her back. I saw to the grounds, mowed the grass, and cut weeds, kept the swimming pool clean, did the small repairs. Everything was fine for the first year. 
I was holding down another job nights and we were just getting ahead. We had plans. Then one morning, I don't know, I just laid some bathroom tile in one of the units when this little Mexican maid comes in to clean. It was Holly had hired her. I can't really say I'd noticed a little thing before, though we spoke when we saw each other. She called me, I remember, Mr. Anyway, anyway, one thing and the other. So after that mor morning, I started paying attention. She was a neat little thing with fine white teeth. I used to watch her mouth. She started calling me by name. One morning, I was doing a washer for one of the bathroom faucets, and she comes in and turns on the TV, as maids are like to do. While they clean, that is, I stopped what I was doing and stepped outside the bathroom. She was surprised to see me. She smiles and says my name. It was right after she said it that we got down on the bed. Holly, you're still a proud woman, I go. You're still number one. Come on, Holly. She shakes her head. Something's died in me, she goes. It took a long time for it to do it, but it's dead. You've killed something. Just like you take it, took an axe to it. Everything is dirt now. She finishes her drink, then she begins to cry. I make to hug her, but it's no good. I freshen our drinks and look out the window. Two cars without estate plates are parked in front of the office, and the drivers are standing at the door talking. One of them finishes saying something to the other and looks around at the units and pulls his chin. There's a woman there, too, and she has her face up to the glass, hands shielding her eyes, peering inside. She tries the door. The phone downstairs begins to ring. Even a while ago, when we were doing it, you were thinking of her, Holly goes. Dwayne, this is hurtful. She takes the drink I give her. Holly, I go. It's true, Dwayne, she goes. Don't argue with me, she goes. She walks up and down the room in her underpants and her brassiere, her drink in her hand. Holly goes, you've gone outside the marriage. It's trust that you've killed. I get down on my knees and I start to beg, but I'm thinking of Juanita. This is awful. I don't know what's going to happen to me or anyone else in the world. I go, Holly, honey, I love you. In the lot, someone leans on a horn, stops, and leans again. Holly wipes her eyes. She goes, fix me a drink. This one's too watery. Let them blow their stinking horns. I don't care. I'm moving to Nevada. Don't move to Nevada, I go. You're talking crazy, I go. I'm not talking crazy, she goes. Nothing's crazy about Nevada. You can't stay here with your cleaning You can stay here with your cleaning woman. I'm moving to Nevada either there or kill myself. Holly, I go. Holly, nothing, she goes. She sits on the sofa and draws her knees up under her chin. Fix me another pop, you son of a bitch, she goes. She goes, fuck those hornblowers. Let them do their dirt in the travel lodge. That where you clean a woman cleans now? Fix me another, you son of a bitch. She sets her lips and gives me a special look. Well, next up on the sort of modern theme, and when I say modern, I kind of mean that, you know, no longer... Well, it's writers when they're not concerned so much about form, and they're willing to take that form and let the story be conscious of itself, and tell the story using other devices and other phrases, and really talking in that vernacular of people, rather than trying to be so didactic with what you're saying and making the people say that for you. Sort of letting the characters really drive the bus with this economy of language. And I think the story by Kelsey Nelson is a real good example of this. This is called Synchronicity, and it's about to be published in a magazine in Japan called The Foreigner. Um, but I'm just going to read a snippet so, you know, be, it being read on a big-time, internationally famous podcast doesn't violate any kind of rights of first refusal or anything. Gordy sat in the Lucky Whistle bar and watched on the television as his hometown was destroyed by an unprecedented hurricane. He was drinking his beer. It was his fourth within the hour. He was not usually a heavy drinker. 
Tomiko, the bartender, craned her neck to view the scene on the television. Wow, she said. That's amazing. Gordy looked at her, eyes wide, mouth open. Aren't you America, Jean? Gordy-san? You ever go to New Orleans City? Gordy's mind condensed and expanded in a dizzy second. Images saturated with the Kodachrome effect of years past flickered on and off the French Quarter apartment with the thick, twisted iron railing, the rough, white cobblestones of Pirate's Alley, the sound of trumpets on the corner, the inescapable smell of urine and beer tucking into doorways during sudden squalls, Valentina's shirt soaked through, her face glistening with rain and shock. Uh-huh. The television switched to overhead copter views as close as they could get. Cars floated down Canal Street. Black people stood on balconies with thick, twisted iron railings and waved. Not parade waves. Double-armed, for the love of God, see me and pluck me from this hell waves. He couldn't help but feel guilty. We destroyed our city. Beep. Hi, Gordy. It's Val. I left the copies of my birth certificate and passport in the roll top. Could you please mail them to Mr. Sagawa's Tokyo address? I think the address is in your planner. Give me a call if it isn't. Beep. Gordy paid his bill, reminded himself again that it's improper to leave a tip, and stepped out into the night. It was raining in Osaka. A mild typhoon had stroked the backbone of Japan all week. It lost the force of the wind after landfall in Kyushu. Now it was just a bother, soaking the bottom of Gordy's merino trousers and making the sidewalk slick and difficult to walk. Gordy was not seriously lost. He'd lived in the city long enough to know that if he just followed any main road long enough, He'd soon come to a rail or subway line with a graphic, brightly colored map that would show him which train would take him back to his Namba neighborhood. He usually walked with eyes wide open, soaking in the lights and sounds, desperately trying to commit the streets to memory so he could show off his knowledge of Osaka when friends from the States came to visit. Not today. Today he had collided full frontal into three different people. Simasan, Simasan, Simasan. How quickly you learn to apologize for yourself when you live in a foreign country. Beep. Hi, Gordy. I really need that paperwork. Please send it soon, okay? Beep. Val had asked for a divorce a day after Christmas. Gordy withdrew, hoping his hurt would draw her out, break that obscenely stalwart fortress of resolve and strength that protects her from real life. She's never understood what life is like for ordinary people, people without built-in confidence and undeniable God-given talents, people like him. Val's only weak spot was Gordy. He knew this. He used it. He drug himself down, down, as far as he could go so that she would be crippled, unable to run from him. She did stay, but only in appearance. When he read the ad, he knew immediately that it was hers. Creating desire had always been one of her God-given talents. Man, maybe the modern theme is drinking and failed relationships. <laughs> oh, with that in mind, I think I'll have a drink. And you? Perhaps you shall join me. Uh, all right. Wrapping up with uh, something of mine. 8 o'clock a.m. in some tacky, classy hotel, discovering mental health hazards by Davos in 1987. I see the sun. For some reason, I didn't think they had sun here in the daytime. Just at night, neon night, I stumbled towards doors but stopped in the lobby. How's the luck treating you? An old man with a cigarette and a green suit slumped on a stool praying to a box. The lights, whistles, levers, chrome look washed out, bland in the light. Not designed for daytime. On and off, long night. He swallowed a large amount of drink. Me and the wife just came up from Kansas City, Missouri. Winnebago Warriors, true Yankee pioneers, you know. He satisfied the machine, shoving silver biscuits down his starving mouth. Can't beat it coming here. 
8 o'clock a.m., I wander through the aftermath of last night, or a thousand million last nights, halls of slot machines topped with pyramids of martini glasses, roulette tables overflowing ashtrays, and skanky chicks in miniskirts vacuuming away the revelry, frustration, depression, elation, popcorn, and pretzels. Yeah, it depresses me. I shouldn't have. Everybody loved it. Better than life itself. Maybe this explained things. But but I felt wrong. I could leave the glamour sluts alone to their city of tastelessness. None of my affair to decide how they would live. To them, the long-haired granola head was a freak. That's me! I'm a freak! But I wasn't, damn it! I'd blow the whole fucking place to hell. No big change, but no one understood my idea, my philosophy, the way it should be. I made a list, kind of, things I hate about Vegas. A list of tasteless things. Gold chains, polyester clothes, 69-cent shrimp cocktail. Almost a plus, if it were somewhere far away. Lounge singers, sequins, Don Rickles, Frank Sinatra, Wayne Newton, the whole lot. Smoke neon lights, wedding chapels, the word classy, heart-shaped beds, limousines, people who dig them. Sexy senior citizens, bumper stickers, hair grease, people have fun in this den of squalling filth. It was an extremely long list. What kind of justification was that? They could all write lists about me, so what? I tried a new list. Good things to do instead of Las Vegas. A good list, I figured, with less cloud, however, than the previous one. A new viewpoint was needed. Socio-political, maybe. No good. Gamblers generate tax dollars and all that. Environmental, well, waste of power for building dams, dams personal sore spot. I liked it. Sort of, almost maybe effective. A good start, but not enough. What do I care about, anyway? Let all the fools dwindle near abyss. I don't like them just because I don't like it, goddammit, all to hell. In fact, I'm in favor of making it better for them. They need a huge, opaque dome placed over the whole city. Paint it black inside with neon stars, spaceships, and with a few more of those huge cowboys with waving arms. Hey, what a sexy place that'd be. Distribute free I lo- love Las Vegas or gamblers do it by chance bumper stickers. Multicolored condoms with sequins and glitter glued on, huh? Change the name to Vegas with a dollar sign, not Las Vegas. What do you need the loss for? Just Vegas with a dollar sign. No one calls classic. No one classy calls it that anyway. The inhabitants of this new Garden of Eden could create a race of perfect humans. Humans born with hairy chest, gold chains, pencil mustache, bloodshot eyes, bad singing voices, facelift that put their eyebrows up by their hairline, silicon tits, leopard spotted bikini briefs, tubes tied, and vitally lucky touch in the never-failed system. The dome would just provide perpetual nighttime. No one have to sleep. Just go to bed. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Everything looks too washed out and bland in the daytime anyway. Too damn natural. No one sees it much, though. No more morning afters. This is a perennial last night. Infinite nights to use your best pickup lines on the nasty cocktail girls. Baby, baby, ain't it the life. Even if you ran out of speed, you wouldn't have to sleep a minute of the day, they say. Too much to do. Viva Las Vegas. They could clone Wayne Newton twice, three times, make a million of them. Barry Manilow, too. Resurrect Elvis. Breed little Elvises and bronze Taliesavallis' testicles. I'd support the idea if they all promised never to leave, to remain not prisoners, but special VIP guests. In this hell for life. Do it all. I don't hate it here. I love it. But maybe I'll just blow this fucking pit sky high anyway. Either that or just take a long nap after my $3 lunch buffet. Oh, and you know, I got reading so fast there, there's even a little bit of beer left, so I'm just going to lean up against this tree, turn off the flashlight, and finish it up. You remember what I read? I see that was Murakami Haruki, the bit about the barn burning, Raymond and uh, people drinking, and having confusing relationships. And then that was Raymond Carver from uh, what we talk about when we talk about love. That was a bit of a story that was about uh, drinking and uh, difficult relationships. Yep. And then there was uh, something by Kelsey Nelson. 
Oh, they're, they're drinking and having a failed relationship. Okay, yeah. And then there's something by me, and, uh, eh, didn't really fit in. But, uh, uh, well, you know, it's not like it's costing you anything. What else I got to tell you? Want to know what to get me for Christmas? I'd like a copy of Richard Brodigan's Rommel Drives Deep Into Egypt. It's a small book of poetry. It doesn't tend to be real easy to find. So if anyone wants to get me a Christmas present, Richard Brodigan, Rommel Drives Deep Into Egypt. Otherwise, eh, I could use some socks. Some wool socks. If you don't mind, just send them along. And, uh... Yeah, I guess that's about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd like also like peace in the Middle East and for the Canucks to win the Stanley Cup. That's about it. Uh, wool socks for Festivus. What a pleasant thought. 